This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Mike Rose. Mike is super passionate about woodcock hunting. Uh, super interesting to hear how that started and the life that he's lived with that and where that's taken him. Uh, so I really enjoyed this one. I hope you guys do as well. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Yeah, I have no agenda other than just hearing how you got into this world, um, where it started, where it's taken you, some of your adventures, stuff like that. But I, honestly, just a conversation back and forth about really birds and sounds like woodcock woodcocks number one above everything oh uh, i've spent uh, this will be my 50th year shooting woodcock okay hunting them yeah not necessarily shooting them but hunting them so yeah i would say it's been the standard of my life for 50 years it's what i look forward to every fall and um it's what my dogs and i do okay and and w- I told you we weren't live. I was recording just to check to see how my levels are. And now we are rolling. So if you're comfortable, we can just sure. keep going. You can keep going. Yeah. Uh, where did that begin for you? I mean, you said many years ago, but how did you get introduced to that? Uh, I came to Tech in 67 and then in 72 graduated and started working in early 73 in Alpena, Michigan. Okay. And I worked for a fellow named O.B. Eustace, Horrible Blanton Eustace, and he was from Laurel, Mississippi. Hmm. He was 60 years old, and he had been an avid woodcock hunter uh, his whole life. Uh, He would also um, hunt other birds and deer and that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but mainly he was just a woodcock hunter, and he really was enamored with the bird and taught me the world of how to do it. And just happenstance, like, hey, Mike, do you want to come out this weekend, or how did... I worked, I worked for him and it ended up during the bird season every Saturday and Sunday we would hunt together. Okay. And back then the limit of woodcock was five back in the early 70s. Right. Uh, the limit was five birds and we'd go out and early season was September 15th in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the end of the season was November 14th. Uh, the birds, early season, you got a lot of leaves and if you shoot a bird, oh, 10 yards away that could be a long shot and then as the leaves fall it opens up a little bit okay uh so but those first times you had gone had prior to your boss mentioning them have you ever even heard of them were they on your radar at all at that point no my dad used to hunt pheasants in lower michigan a little bit and i remember carrying a 22 or walking along with him when i was a youngster but had never really done a lot of bird hunting at all so okay he's the one that introduced me to the real world of bird hunting in michigan right what about pre woodcock hunting before your boss there you hadn't done a lot of bird hunting what about other hunting deer or anything like that were you not particularly okay no. so so this wasn't a world you were enamored with prior to this point just never, kind of a never really heard of it no okay other than 
my dad had had some setters, English setters, which got to hunt two, three days a year, which is not enough time for a bird dog to really learn okay. much about it. Right. And uh, I don't know that my dad ever had a lot of formal training on that. So. Okay. I gotcha. So to me, it's super interesting, the trajectory, like how did you get into it and, and how quick did it take off for you? Right. And then also where has it taken you all that kind of stuff. So what were those first experiences like going out hunting those woodcocks? You know, it's hard to answer that. I just got into it. Okay. It's, it's a little bit, as Adam mentioned, you know, seven, eight years ago, nine years ago, it's just something that grabs you. It either grabs you or it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, in the state of Michigan, every year they say we have around 47,000 woodcock hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we really have in the state of Michigan is 47,000 people who may shoot a woodcock on occasion. Right. I don't even know how many real woodcock hunters we have in the state of Michigan, but I would be surprised if there's really more than 4,000. Yeah. Maybe even 2,000 that are really enamored with it and really care for it. So. Right. Right. So, but jumping to today and we'll go back to the beginning, but jumping to today, you are, I mean, it's a huge part of your world, right? You said you have a, 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 a society or a group that you're a part of, right? There's American Woodcock Society. Yes. Chapter in Houghton. Okay. And you guys help out in some local habitat type stuff and you have some banquets coming up or what was that? We have, um, on the 25th of June, which is a Saturday, we have our shoot, uh, which is at Ottawa Sportsman's Club. Okay. And it's a target, uh, clay target shoot, and it's limited to 40 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is going to be uh, advertised fairly soon here, and it's going to be on Saturday the 25th, mostly in the morning. There's a lunch at the end, and it, if you stay for lunch, it might run to 1 o'clock, 1.30, something like that. We try to get people in and out fairly quickly. Okay. Um, and then uh, we're going to have a banquet in the end of August either the 16th Tuesday or the 23rd. We're not quite sure. Mm-hmm. And that would be like other banquets you've been to, Ducks Unlimited and uh, Trout Unlimited and all of that. So very much the same. Sure, right. But all revolving around the Woodcock, right? All revolving around the Woodcock Society, yes. Okay, right. I got gotcha. you. Huh, cool. And the Woodcock Society is a subset of the Rough Grouse Society. Okay. And a lot of people have heard of Rough Grouse and right. hunt them as well. So Yeah, our most you mentioned the number of woodcock hunters and that they're really a uh, a number of hunters who occasionally happen to shoot a woodcock are you saying that most of them are grouse hunters that just occasionally happen to get a woodcock or a... I, I think most people would be grouse hunters yes they would go out for grouse and if they saw a woodcock um they may or may not try to shoot it uh over over my almost 50 years of doing this i can't tell you the number of people i ask well you shot one great did you like it and the answer is no i didn't like it hmm. i'm not going to ever shoot them again right they only want the grouse woodcock is dark meat yeah and the legs are white okay whereas a grouse is white meat right yeah and a woodcock is a well it'd be like a teal if you're a duck hunter it's more like a mild um kind of like a mild tasting duck or so okay uh and you do not want to overcook them uh our woodcock we pluck them and uh, we'll soak them in the marinade or so, and then we'll grill them medium rare. Mm-hmm. And the little legs are white meat, and you nibble on them, and then you uh, eat the breast, which, again, is medium rare, and it's just delicious. Yeah. Huh. But we're okay with the people who don't want to shoot and eat them also. So. <laughs> right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to get a feel for where you're at today, and it's been many years that you're doing it. But, again, back to the beginning. You said you don't really remember necessarily why it gripped you or how it gripped you, but it just did, and you got into it. Was it overnight kind of thing or a slow progression before you were all in on 
hunting and learning about woodcocks? Well, you're younger than I am. Yeah. So you're able to think back that far. Sure. Some yeah. of us can't think back that far. <laughs> we, um, Obi used this, Obi and I would go and uh, he taught me how he prepares the birds and that. Uh, we would shoot grouse as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but mainly we were after woodcock predominantly in my world because the grouse are too hard to hit okay they're hard to, they're a lot much more are they the king of the bird and the other thing is is with woodcock they're very good for a dog yeah you can train a dog very uh, much easier on a woodcock than you can on a grouse huh. grouse tend to run right woodcock don't run as much they used to run less but now they run uh even more so okay that first year uh, i started there in april and that first fall I hunted with Obi and his dog, and then later on I got a Brittany. He helped me pick out a Brittany. Okay. Uh, that was, I think, came from Oscoda area, just a little way south of Alpena. Mm-hmm. And I remember going with him to get that Brittany, and I remember as a youngster saying, well, now, I think we were paying $125, which in 1974 was a lot of money. And I remember saying to Obi, I said, well, so this dog's going to be a really good dog. It'd be a good dog. He said, nope, we don't know that. Yeah. We're paying good money to get good genetics, but that doesn't mean it's going to work out. Right. Huh. But, and we're looking at, you brought in a mount of one of the woodcocks you, you have shot. Right. Um, and somebody has shot, if you haven't seen it, you really almost have to Google it to see what the, mm-hmm. what it looks like. Cause it's such a unique bird with the long bill and whatever else. And the eyeballs on the side, you were explaining before we got on, so it can see behind it as it's digging for worms and right. insects, stuff like that. Eh? Right. And it has a prehensile beak. The bottom half inch of its beak will open up and the rest of the beak stays closed and then he can grab a worm down there and pull it out. So so the bottom of that beak will open up and he grabs a worm and then he can pull it out. Yeah, like it's hinged or somehow? It's just soft. It, on the mount here, it's not soft, but it's just softer down here and the, the top just lifts up. Crazy. Huh. So he can grab it. <laughs> yeah. No, so... Yeah, I just again just giving somebody a visualization that long beak, but a really a smaller bird compared to your your, your typical rough grouse as well. Yes, but you said they're easier to train for dogs. Is it because they're more they're more likely to hit sit prone and they can do the whole point and all that kind of stuff? Or the bird has a tendency to stay rather than run. Grouse have a tendency when they hear noise and people coming, then they tend to run. Okay, and it takes a good dog uh, to be able to pin a grouse so that it uh, the grouse will stay and the dog can point it and hold it. Right. So, and I use flushing dogs. I don't, after the Brittany, I went to labs and I use flushing dogs rather than, um, rather than pointing dogs. Okay. I gotcha. Now Adam's listening or going to listen at some point. He'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> and that's just Ford versus Chevy and preference on, on the individual or how does that play out? I got to be careful, Adam, how I answer this, but yes. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Um, So again, thinking back to the trajectory, you got into it fairly quickly and you said you don't necessarily remember. It was quite a while ago, right? But did you, was it the activity itself, but did you get beyond that where you were learning about like the history of the bird and the ecology of the bird and really learning the whole world and, and everything around the bird itself versus just the activity of the woodcock Obi Eustace wrote a couple of books he was a manager in industry in the plants that I was in and okay. he had built several of the plants around the country uh, and he was a person who understood and had studied and knew a lot about the history and some of the problems that the woodcock have had back mm. then um, the woodcock is very predominantly in early forest 
Uh, if you take a group of aspens down and cut them, you've seen aspen regeneration around the area here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, trees that are three years old to about 15 years old, those height of trees are trees that the woodcock will tend to um, have families in and roost in and eat and feed in. Mm-hmm. They also will feed in alders, uh, damp areas where they can probe the ground to get the bugs in that that are close to the surface. But in the early 70s, when I started, what happened is the wood clock was in decline by about 2% a year. Okay. And what happened is, um, you don't remember, but I do, there was a strong, strong push by the Sierra Club and other people back then that we shouldn't cut all our fo- cut our forests down, mm-hmm. what we call today clear cut. Right. And we should just do selective cut. Well, when you do selective cut and you let the trees get bigger and bigger, pretty soon there's no cover for the woodcock. There aren't trees that are eight to 15 feet tall anymore. You have you have maple trees as we have around here that are that big and mm-hmm. way high. There's no cover for the birds. Right. So the birds leave that area. And eventually because, because clear cutting was really not banned, but it was really pushed down and really um, spoken badly of, mm-hmm. what happened is, is 50, over 50 species of birds and mammals started to go into serious decline. And that was in the early seventies. Yeah. So the Woodcock Society is here to tell people about that and to make sure there's habitat for the birds, because without habitat, there'll be no birds. Right. Now, what do you hunt? Largely deer. Uh, Mm -hmm. Turkey as well, but largely deer. Do you hunt deer out in the wide open plains? I have, yeah, out west. Yeah, but in Michigan here, do you hunt deer in the open fields? Do you look for them in the middle of the fields? It's kind of a mix. Uh, My favorite thing is out in the big hardwoods type stuff. Yeah. Uh, so some field area, but a lot of that requires private land, which I don't have big right. access to. Um, so a lot of it's in the forest. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder if I've even hunted some uh, woodcock habitat areas. Like I've hunted some 20-year-old clear cuts with aspen stands and trails going through them, stuff like that. Well, a 20-year-old would be too old for the birds. They okay. wouldn't tend to be in there. Grouse may be in there. Grouse tend to be in a little bit more mature cover, okay. uh, but not totally mature. Okay. Um, my question to you was, is generally you don't expect to find birds sitting right in the middle of the field. They're near the edge of the field, and and uh, they can be in thick places as well as not thick places, but they want to have some some habitat that suits them, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have to go where the bird, birds are right. or, and the deer are. And in, in the West, we hunt North Dakota for pheasants and, and sharptail on that, but in the West, it's a different world out there where mm-hmm. there's farms and open land and all of that i mean they'll they'll sleep in woodlots and that and then they may move through an open area but they're trying to get to another more protected area yeah right is there that same equivalency like out west if you're going to go whitetail hunt out west for example it's uh typical that there's way more predictability with tree rows and uh limited cover whatever else it might be do you have the same whereas up here the deer are scattered out all over the place there's still an edge and still a science to it but it you're way more prone to just find deer scattered across the landscape here is that true for birds out west too where they're more concentrated in these smaller birds yeah for birds right i'm wondering if there's a correlation well the pheasants they're going where the food is okay and you're trying to find them where the food is. Uh, the early part of the day, the birds out west feed, and maybe an hour and a half after daybreak, then they stop feeding. They go to an area to loaf. Mm-hmm. And then what they want, when they're in a loafing cover, what they want is they want to have an open ground area, um, like a cattail marsh, and then they want cover above them so predators, avian predators can't see them and swoop down and attack them Mm -hmm. but then at night then they'll feed again in a later afternoon and then at night what they do is they want to go to a 
knee-high grassy area where they can curl up and kind of the grass is closer to them and more around their bodies. Okay. Okay. So so you're looking for where you think they're going to be. And every year I go to North Dakota, I've been there about 20-some years. Every year I go to North Dakota, Adam's been going with me for several years. And uh, I always am all excited and think about where I'm going to get these birds and how I'm going to find them. And after a couple hours of walking, I just look at myself and sort of say, just keep walking and keep your mouth closed. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you just have to, you have to put your, for woodcock, sometimes you can go find them right away and other times you can't. And yeah. for pheasants, it's the same thing. You just have to walk until you can get them going. Right. And each year it's not the same as the year before and stuff like that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Is you can think you've got it figured out or? or oh, well, each year out? the crops are different to people. We're hunting crop area sometime. Yeah. And one year you go out, if it's been really dry, the guys out in North Dakota, they'll mow all the cattail marshes right down. Mm -hmm. They'll run the tractor till they get it stuck. And then they say, okay, we can't mow any more of these down, but we got as much as we could. Right. Because for North Dakota farmers, the land that they can plant is the land they make money on. Mm -hmm. If there's a 40-acre cattail marsh in the middle of a of a 160-acre field, they can't make any money off that. Mm -hmm. So anytime they can push the crops back or, or push the cattails back, they will, which, of course, is counterproductive to what we want right. as hunters. We'd like to have areas of cattail and cover, daily cover for the birds uh, when, when we're out there hunting, we don't want to be, if you look at an area that's just been cut over and has wheat stubble on it, you're not going to find anything in it. Right. Right. So, but part of that trajectory is that I keep asking you about is, did it, it took you on a lot of adventures. You mentioned you went over to Scotland one time yeah. to hunt yeah. woodcock. What are, I guess, can you tell that story? What was that like to go overseas and do that? It was, the birds are a little bit larger. Okay. Um, we had guides cause we didn't know what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have uh, Springer Spaniels. They'd have four or five Springer Spaniels running around in the brush and trying to get the birds up. Huh. The same as happens here with a lab. You have a lab trying to get the birds up. In my case, um, other people have German short hairs, which try to find the bird and point the bird. And then you find the dog and then hopefully flush the bird and get a shot. Um, it, it was different over there in that basically anything that moved, you could shoot. Okay. I remember one day, we went three days. I remember one day we shot a hare over there, a rabbit, maybe, I don't know, 400 yards from the truck where we had parked. And the guy said that when he picked up the four to five pound critter, he said, well, now don't shoot any more any further from the truck because I got to carry him. <laughs> Yeah. And then we shot, a one day we shot a couple of pheasants that went up and then the woodcock and shot wood pigeon and that. I mean, it's it's sort of a, seemed like a different, a little bit of a different world in terms of rules and regulations, but I'm sure they have many that are more restrictive than ours over in Scotland too. So, Sure. Yeah. But you were hunting a pretty sizable plot of land or what was the, the landscape like? We got were? in cars and we went everywhere. Okay. We went different places. They load the dogs up and then they go to a different spot and then we'd hunt that. So, yeah. Okay. Much like woodcock. Woodcock hunting is that way. You have a tendency when you woodcock hunt, unless you're fortunate to find birds and shoot a limit, which has been reduced to three birds now. It used to be five when I started. Um, you, you may have to go to multiple sites to find birds. It depends on how large the site is that you go to, how many acres it might be. It depends if there's any birds there because the birds may get up. When they start migrating as the leaves come down, the birds may get up and they may fly 
a quarter mile to a different patch of woods. Mm -hmm. And maybe they were there one day, but not there the next day. So it's hunting. You have, you have to find the birds, you have to get them up and then you have to shoot them in the thickets. Mm -hmm. So, okay. What about on side of the Scotland trip any other sweet adventures that you've been on? Uh, That's part of the, uh, part of what I really enjoy about hunting is the crazy places it take you takes you that you never would have gone to if you weren't hunting. So I'm curious about that, like out West, uh, some of these different places or, or have you ever gone chucker hunting or anything like that? Have you gone on some of these? Cool... I've never been chucker hunting. Uh, I had an old friend who died seven, eight years ago out on the West coast and he used to go chucker hunting in Eastern Washington and Montana. And he just said, you just have to walk yeah. and it's up and it's down then the bird flushes, mm-hmm. you kill it, and it falls down 350 feet into a ravine. Then you got to go down and get it. Right. And I told him when I was 60, I said, John, I said, I think I might be getting too old for that. He said, you probably are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something you might like. Yeah, I know. I would give it a yeah. roll for sure, yeah. No, I pretty well just hunted the woodcock and, and shoot a few grouse around here. Uh, and then the Dakotas became a different thing, the pheasants. And pheasants are different. I mean, pheasants, if you can get them up, it's generally not hard to shoot them mm-hmm. uh, if they're within gun range because there aren't, they get up above the top of the corn or the top of the cattails and there's nothing else in your way. Right. Down here, you get the bird up and it's like, why didn't I shoot? It went behind that tree or why didn't I shoot? Those leaves got in the way. So much yeah. faster game here. Yeah, right. But how did that North Dakota side of things happen? Was that you that initiated that or somebody t- took you along? Or um, a, a fella I used to hunt birds with a few days a year. He was in the power plant business. I took care of a couple of his plants for him, water chemistry-wise. Mm-hmm. He had friends who duck hunted in North Dakota. He said, I said, well, maybe one year I'll go duck hunting with you guys out there. He said, sure. So we went out there and we duck hunted like the first morning and then that afternoon we said well there's supposed to be some pheasants around here Mm -hmm. so we went pheasant hunting and uh we just found there's there can be you go to the right places there can be some good upland game there and so we would just much rather do that than hunt hunt ducks his friends were hardcore ducks but we went for we ended up going for pheasants okay uh and you didn't anticipate that like when you went out on that duck hunt you thought it was going to be a duck hunt the entire time yeah yeah, basically. I mean, North Dakota is not known for pheasants. Right. North South Dakota has been known for pheasants for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have a lot of a lot of ranches there, and and you pay to pay to play, and and it's good. North Dakota is different. North Dakota has had different trespass laws too, mm-hmm. which is very convenient. So. Right, right. But that was engaging, and you've been back every year since. Yeah, I don't know, twenty two, twenty four years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and a large part of your world is this Midwest woodcock hunting, but do you travel south at all? I mean, you mentioned that in the in the winter, they'll migrate down to as far as Louisiana, do you say, was it? I've never really, I've never hunted woodcock other than other than in the upper peninsula, upper and lower, northern lower peninsula, Michigan. Okay. Yeah. I've never followed them. I've been going to do that. I thought it'd be fun to do, but you know, we shoot, I mean, I've been doing this for 50 years almost and it's not important to me anymore that I that I kill a limit of woodcock every day or every other day. Mm-hmm. It's more important that I get birds that I in get people interested in it, right? And and get new people like Adam interested in, it, and that's just more important. So yeah. Um, but we have four years ago we went to uh, we went down to the north side of Tucson, Oro Valley. Okay. And um, my wife and I decided to go there for the winter time, being retired. 
And the first year down there, someone pointed out to me that quail season is still on. Hmm. And this was in December. And I said, well, how long does quail season go? And they said, well, quail season goes till the second weekend of February. And I went, so in Michigan, I hunt woodcock from around, from the first Saturday closest to the 18th, I think it is, or the 22nd in September. Mm -hmm. And then you can't hunt woodcock in Michigan anymore uh, past around the 4th or 5th of November, mm -hmm. depending on how the seasons fall. So I had, I had six weeks of woodcock shooting. And yeah. then the snows come up here where we live. The snows come, and I don't care to hunt birds in the snow much. I don't... So my season went from six weeks. I went down there in November, and I could hunt November to December, January, February. I had three more, you know, three more well november to december january february right i got three more three more months to go right and i can tell you hunting the quail in the desert is just the same as hunting the woodcock huh. you got to find them you got to get them up and then you hope to heck you can shoot them before they get behind something or get out of range right right yeah. they're a real quick i've never quail hunted they're a real quick and hard to shoot bird they are hard to shoot bird. Okay. I went there with a different attitude and I was wrong again. Yeah. It's very difficult <laughs> to shoot. Yeah. You know, that... I, they could be infinitely easy if they go and they don't go behind a cacti or, and you're not stepping on a cactus or something like that. Yeah. And everything for the gambles quail, which are on the north side of the area where we hunt there, everything there is, uh, everything there will stick you one way or the other. So sure. you, you end up, you have to be watching the dog seeing when the dog gets a birdie and interested because there's probably scent around. And then you have to try to stay around the dog and keep the dog close to you. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you got to be walking around everything. Right. And if you can't go around it, you don't want to go through it. Yeah. Because you'll be picking stickers out of you and you won't be shooting anything. So yeah. it, it's it's just all different. It's all, and I think it's with the dog, you know, I mean, it's, it's something I love to do, but it's getting the dog to understand a new bird and, to help find them and and doing it all together it's really it's really kind of a teamwork thing yeah i want to get into the dog side of things in a bit here but I, thinking about that arizona type landscape do you do you really enjoy that western open uh almost a throwback type landscape or in my head it's a throwback because i'm picturing reading a, a louis lamore western novel and that's what i that's kind of the landscape that i picture when i drive through there it's it's just so cool uh but do you appreciate that for me, for for me, I guess the landscape is just something different. Whether it's there, North Dakota, or here, instead of landscape, I would call it the habitat is sure. different. Okay. And you out there, the habitat is almost unlimited. It seems like. Right. And I could be wrong. I've only been doing it four years, but here. And in North Dakota, the habitat can be very specific. Mm -hmm. In North Dakota, if I have a choice to have cover and it is near corn or cut over corn, that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two would be cover near beans. Mm -hmm. That's number two. But there's always got to be some cover, some place that they can go to, and the closer it is, the better. Yeah. Here, it's very much... Here, it's very, very much about the habitat. If If you don't have the right habitat... You're not going to find woodcock. Okay. And even if you have the right habitat, they may be in the next patch of habitat that's just like the one you're in, but it's eighth of a mile away. Right. And and I kept records for a long time of the number of flushes I had 
per hour. Hmm. Um, and it was very consistent. It was within 20% plus or minus for 25 years up here. Hmm. Very consistent. But, and that included new places I would explore every year because I knew if I didn't explore new places, my old places would get too tall and the birds wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah. So every year I had some places where I came up negative, didn't get anything, but when everything all went together, I was within 20% plus or minus all the time. So. Yeah. What was your flushes per hour? Do you remember those numbers? I don't really remember them. Okay. But if you had to throw a dart at the wall, I mean, I... I... They're way more than most people will talk about, and they're way more than the DNR puts out when they've interviewed people or gotten records from people. But I think that's because people aren't going they're not going where the habitat is right if you're not focused on habitat with any bird arizona is different because there's thousands of acres and they're all the same mm-hmm. i think but after four years i may still not be right there might be a guy who's got 40 years in and he'll say you don't want to walk there you want to walk over here right so it's, it's everything's habitat focused and if you don't have the habitat as in the early 70s, because we weren't cutting whole sections of trees down yeah. and coming up young and brushy, you won't have the birds. Okay. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and back-end solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C dot com. So, but at what point, do you remember at what point it really became, because right now you're more on the, the educating new people, getting people excited about it, advocacy for the bird, for habitat, whatever else. When did that track record or that line start for you? Do you remember? Well, so much of what I learned was from Ob Eustis, the first guy. Okay, he was interested in that. Right. Okay. If we could get a limit of five birds, that was great. But he was much more interested in well, why are the birds here and why aren't they there? Mm-hmm. He had eighty acres west of uh, Alpena on the Thunder Bay River, mm-hmm. and he managed that eighty acres for habitat, and he managed it for habitat for grouse, and he managed it for habitat. For Woodcock, he would take sections of that, three, four acre sections, and have someone come in and clear cut it. Then it would come up in these whips, and then the Woodcock would move there from older stuff that had gotten older. So I learned a lot of that. Most of that I really learned from him. He taught me that the birds are here because of this. Mm -hmm. And if this goes away, then they won't be here. Right, okay. Right. So, but he taught you a lot of the big picture stuff I'm curious if, say he just brought you hunting and you had the same action, identical action, but didn't teach you the why behind what you're doing or the big picture or the, again, some of the ecology type stuff, would it have gripped you as much? Like, is that big picture stuff a lot of what helped make it a bigger deal for you? I I would say probably. Okay. I, I can't really answer 
for sure. But I mean, he taught me to train. He taught me how to train the dogs. He taught me how to do. He didn't teach me get your dog, grab your gun, and go kill a woodcock. He mm. didn't. He didn't teach me that. He he taught me the whys and the wherefore, and it it all went together. Right. And I mean, even today, you you can go to a what drive down the road you've been driving by for three years, and you say, I know, I think that spot's about right. Hmm. And you can go in there and you say, what am I doing wrong? Because there's nobody there. Right. But as you get older, as I get more experienced in it, I think the reality is, is some days they're not there. Hmm. In the morning, they just flew up and went to a different area. Yeah. They didn't go very far or they flew up. It's, it's more mid-October here. They flew up and they went 50 miles down south. Yeah. And now they're heading towards Wisconsin and from there they're going further south. Right, right. Okay. And what about the dog side of things? It feels like, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'm curious for you, how much of a component is the dog relationship and the dog training and that whole side of things with in, in relation to your excitement level? Oh, it's everything. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's you and the dog. It's you and your pal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other part is important, but you, you can't, you can't, if you don't go with the dog and you just walk around and you you flush one woodcock here and another one three hours later, you're not really, it's just not all together. Yeah. I mean, I'm a dog person and you just have to, you have to have a dog. Right. Hunting without a dog, you, you just, I've done it. And when dogs have died early and before I could get another one, but. Yeah. You normally go with someone who's got a dog. Mm-hmm. A lot from better a, chance to find the birds. Now, guys in Arizona, I see people out there hunting in Arizona. Two guys in their twenties, they get a truck and they say, "Say, what are you doing? We're hunting birds." Yeah, and I see the guns and everything else. I, I don't. It's mind-boggling to me how they hunt the birds without a dog. But right, right, because I'm a dog person. Yeah, but for you, so mind-boggling from a, a efficiency standpoint or a effective hunting standpoint, but also from a like a meaningful standpoint, or you know what I mean, like a. On top of it being effective to you, is it a really important and uh, impactful and whatever else of the, just the working and the relationship with the dog? For me, it's very impactful. I, I uh, to have a relationship with the dog is everything. And I know people who have, uh, I've actually hunted with people uh, who have had dogs. And when the dog gets a little bit older, they either just have it put down or they give it to someone else and go get a young pup again. Mm -hmm. And that's because all they're interested in is killing birds. Right. And, and bird hunting is not about killing birds. Bird hunting is about learning about birds and understanding and training a dog and training yourself mm -hmm. in my world to be a better bird hunter. But to be a better bird hunter, and I'm reading some old books here now that are written in the 1800s, to be a better bird hunter doesn't mean you kill more birds. Mm -hmm. You may kill birds more efficiently with fewer shots because you become a better shot. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may find them in better time better time not you may not take four hours of a day to find birds to shoot but you you know better where to look mm -hmm. and it's 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 the whole mystique of the whole thing of i don't know it's the whole thing for me yeah other guys go just to shoot a bird they just want to go shoot a bird they don't and and I'd like to shoot a bird, but I'd, I want to see the dog work. I want the dog to find the bird. I want to know I went to the right place. I want the dog to be happy because I took him to the place where the birds are mm -hmm. rather than some maple forest. You won't find woodcock in a maple forest here because it's just too big. Right, 
Right. No, the reason I ask, I found the things that I'm most excited about and the most engaged in, and I don't know if what came first, the chicken or the egg thing, it's but what I'm excited about the whole picture, the history, where are we going, the ecology, the the mystique around it, all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas the activities that I'm just engaged in the act of doing, uh, they don't grip me the same. So again, I don't know what came first. Is it the fact that this mule deer hunting, for example, gripped me and then I become excited about the big thing? Or was the big, I guess I don't know that you have to define that, but it just seems like the thing that you're going to devote a lifetime to, it's more than, and I say this all the time, but it's more than just the bird hunting. It's the big picture. It's the mystique. It's the ecology. It's the, uh, what it means to you, what it, how it makes you feel everything beyond just the simple act of doing. Well, you're, what did you say? 28? 28. Yeah. You, you've got, you got 45 years to go to get to be my age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 45 years from now, do you think your whole goal is going to be to find and learn more and and about mule deer? I think so. Yeah, I think not. Yeah, okay. I, I you may find other things. You might like bird hunting. You you might you maybe would want to go with us sometime this fall hmm. and learn what it's about because you're very interested in it. But you know, after and it doesn't mean you can't stay with the muleys all your life, right? But you may want to add parts to it too. You, sure. I mean, or you may become a world-renowned expert in muleys, which is good too. Right. But it doesn't mean that within the same genre of hunting <clears throat> and pursuing game that you may not get enamored about something else. Yeah, that'd be exciting to. I'm still all in on mule deer, right? But to have a new thing which a little bit i have that up here with some of the renewed thing in whitetail hunting but i could see that and have that be an exciting thing of getting into something new like the woodcock hunting or something you're not like that. from here no born and raised here and i hunted growing up here oh, yeah. um but i'm just renewed vigor on the whitetail hunting up here i know but you can't whitetail hunt till november 15th right right so what do you do from what do you do from september 15th until november 15th a little bit of scouting right yeah uh and then october 1st bow season starts so mm -hmm. bow hunt right. up here um but otherwise just work you know scouting game cameras stuff like that um but yeah absolutely there's a window for other other things to be involved see the interesting thing and i make no judgment one way or the other but the interesting thing about bird hunting is is if you want to get back to the basics you can't use a game camera mm -hmm. you have to go right you can't set a camera out and then say, well, there's a big buck here and he's been coming every night or every other night. So I'm going to go on Thursday because that's the on night. Yeah. You have to go and you have to find out. So, so you're using a camera to tell you where the, where that there's a deer there you would like to shoot. Right. Now, hopefully you're going into habitat that you're saying, well, there should be deer here. Right. Yeah. No, the but, but it could be different for you too. You should try it. Yeah. To touch on the on the whitetail side of things, what I've been pumped on and why I have re renewed vigor is I've been following guys out east that do this big woods. The big woods bucks is their brand. Uh, Hal Blood is the guy's name, a, mm -hmm. a renowned big woods hunter. Are you familiar with him? Not right. at all. No. Okay. No. Uh, but it's all tracking, uh, still hunting style hunting, where really a game camera is little to no use. So I do it as just an excuse to get out there, but it doesn't make a huge impact or uh, influence where I go hunt. Whereas I'm just looking to go out in these big areas and seek adventure and see some cool views and go to places that I've never would have gone without going for that. No problem. You can take that if you need, or we can 
we can pause um so that that's what it is for me so the game cam- camera is a small component and it's largely around the habitat and where have i yeah. seen deer and whatever else so i feel like that same mode of thinking would apply to the woodcock right. hunting right yeah i mean it's you have to find you have to learn where they are mm-hmm. generally and then you have to go find them and then you have to harvest them if that's what you're choosing to do whether it be whitetail or muleys or woodcock and grouse or pheasants right yeah it's the same but you're an outdoor person i can we can be glad to take you one time Mm -hmm. maybe we can even bring some german short hairs if we want but i don't know we'd have to see about that sure you get that adam anyway uh (laughs) we could have we can have a nice time in this area where there is habitat it's area we see deer tracks all the time and deer trails and this and that and everything else you may find that there's new places that you never thought of hunting that are suitable for what you're trying to do on whitetail here too mm-hmm. so you know it's it, it's it's all part of the be outdoors harvesting and the other part is is and i don't know if you do this but we're doing this with this woodcock chapter you know we hear so many people nowadays they don't want hunting and they don't want all of that mm-hmm. and yet how many of them give money to to whitetails unlimited and how many of them take the time to start a woodcock chapter and work on habitat and locations and education how many of the people who don't hunt help for the benefit of the particular bird or mammal or whatever it is that people do hunt for and generally speaking it seems it's more the people who care than the people who aren't involved in their daily lives right i mean i i dare say you can go outside right here and ask a bunch of people what this is on the street walking down and a bunch of them won't even know what it is mm-hmm. or they may know it's a woodcock and you ask have you ever seen one well never i've never ever seen one right i don't know where they are so you have to pick something that enamors you and it could be white it could be deer hunting it doesn't make any difference but we we have to get involved in these things and we have to try to make a future in a space for these things or it's going to go away right i mean england right now england in that area there is trying to ban they're always trying to ban all hunting they want all hunting to be banned so Mm -hmm. and then at some point when all the hunting is banned i saw this in ann arbor when we lived there for 15 years in ann arbor what happened is is they banned there's no deer hunting in town because there's too many people in that well the deer loved being in town and it was great and the beer deer were eating everything up Mm -hmm. women would open up their living room window shades and look out and there's a deer munching on the on the plants that are right there around the house and then they're yelling and screaming what are we going to do and in ann arbor they actually brought in sharpshooters to kill the deer Hmm. at one point when we lived there right so i mean we have to all kind of get at this thing together and we have to help keep the animals in healthy populations but we also and that may include shooting some of them and harvesting them Mm -hmm. you know but but you have if you're going to harvest them you have to eat them Right. Or you have to prepare them and, and clean them up and give them to people who will, will eat them. Yeah, right. You know, people say to other people, why don't you shoot a coyote? Well, I don't shoot coyotes because I'm not going to eat a coyote. If I knew someone who would take a coyote, I might shoot it, clean it up, and give it to them if they would eat it. But I don't know there's many people like that. So Right. And I'm a little different that way. Other people are like, hey, if there's a coyote, you need to kill it. And I'm just not that way. Out west, it's a big deal. Out west, they go after the cattle and they kill all the cattle out there. So. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, so I want to touch on that actually, the, the uh, hunting helping the species here for a bit. But you said, you asked me, hey, in 40 years, 45 years, are you still going to be enamored with mule deer? And you said you think not. Is that a, 
a history of life and you see people that are enamored and things change a lot because you were enamored for that many years. So I'm curious, you stuck with more one thing, but you're, you're contemplating or considering the fact that I would be likely to switch or should be open to the fact of, of switching or how does that play out? Well, I may have misspoke myself, but I, I, I think it's more, it's probably more, I feel, if you're an outdoor person, you're going to find other activities that fit in there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you may want to become a pheasant expert and give up deer. Right. But that may just happen along in there too, because there's other things out there um, as you have time. And if you're a young person, you've got children and that, mm-hmm. you have those those folks that you have to spend time with too. you got to balance everything. So right. I... I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say it's incorrect for me to say that you probably in 45 years will change to something else, but 45 years is a long time. Right. No, I wasn't saying it at all from a, a defensive standpoint. I'm just trying to see no. if you had some insight just through watching other people or your own internal uh, trajectory of being a hunter that you were had the opinion that it's likely that one might change is all. Yeah. I guess I guess if anything I should say it won't change because I've been the same for 50 years so yeah, yeah. I, I I like deer I don't really like deer hunting okay because deer hunting is more inactive right most deer hunting where you sit in a blind or something like that yeah I mean you sit in a blind and you you shoot a deer that's been coming to corn that's been put there for three four weeks it's mm-hmm. really more deer harvesting which is fine sure right. and, I mean it's woodcock harvesting too uh, it's fine and my wife and I both love venison, but I'd just soon I'd just soon pay for your license, and you call me when you shoot it, and I'll come clean it and give you half, and I'll take half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's why I am. I, I talked about a renewed vigor for the whitetail hunting up here is because I grew up baiting deer and I enjoyed it. I loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. But once I started hunting out west and realized how fun, a active, and a mobile style of deer hunting is, I I I had to recreate that up here. So that's why I'm yeah. doing that here yeah. just because it's, it's unreal. Like, I don't know. To me, it's, it's just uh, on, you don't have to judge one thing versus the other, but I'm saying on my own personal enjoyment, it's 10 times the excitement to just get out there and, and walk for miles and see some new country. Versus and, sitting in a blind. Right. And, yeah. 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 Well, that can, I mean, I think I've shot seven or eight deer over my lifetime, you know, and mm-hmm. And it can be a good thing. Someone drives a little woodlot and you're in an area where the deer come out and you're able to shoot a deer and something like that. But, mm-hmm. and there is some excitement to it for me too. Um, I don't have a place that I go now where I deer hunt and all of that, but woodcock hunting and, and bird hunting, I can go for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. I could be home, do things, you know, do things at home, be home. I'm not necessarily gone all day. You sure. Know, we'll go to North Dakota. We might go for five, six days or a week or something, but mm-hmm. um, that's kind of like going to Canada fishing in June, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get a lot of it out of your system, but. Okay. So again, that's thinking back to the uh, the big picture thing. I, I, I think about that a lot, like in, okay, my whitetail hunting up here or mule deer hunting out West, I turn it in, in my head into this like big romantic adventure and I'm, I'm all exploring and whatever else. And I, and I know a lot about it and I know a lot of the history and I know I, re, I read tons of books on it and stuff like that. And I can't, again, I, 
I don't know the trajectory. It must be that I'm initially, initially just excited about the subject. And then you start diving into all these other areas, but I'm just trying to think if there, is there a correlation between that initial excitement in the big picture for me and something that grips me long-term versus something that I try just on a, a happenstance or a, on an occasional basis. Well, I guess for me, I was thrown into the, the second part you talked about, or I thought it was a second part where you started to read more about it and understand more of the history of it and all of that. I was brought into that right away mm -hmm. because Obiusis was 60 and he had been enamored with uh, upland bird hunting, a woodcock and grouse his whole life. Mm -hmm. So he had already got to that point and he's the one who towed me along, so to speak. And he started relating that to me right away. Okay. For instance, in, I mean, he, he was a unique individual in that on his 80 acres, he would shoot deer, but he shot a deer. And and I remember one day I was out with him there, and I, he said, well, go to this deer blind over here I'm setting up. And he went over there, and there was a mark on a tree. And I said, well, where are you going to be over there? I said, and he said, that mark. See that mark? I said, yeah, what's that mark for? Why do you, why did you hatch it a mark in that tree? He said, because I'm not going to shoot a deer whose back is any higher than that. Hmm. Not lower, any higher. I said, why won't you shoot? Why are you going to shoot a small deer? He said, because they won't make it through the winter. Hmm. They'll die. They'll die. They'll, the winter will come. They're not, it's a young deer. It's not an old enough deer. And that's the one I'm going to shoot. Hmm. And those would be doe, doe tags or whatever. But he would shoot the small deer. Right. Because it's not going to live through the winter very likely. Yeah. Huh. So, so there's so many different ways you can think about things. I'd never thought of that in my whole life. I've never ever heard anybody else ever say anything about that. Right. But I bring it out as an example of how he he worked hard as you're working hard, and that's the good part, to understand things to a deeper level than just we're going to go push this woodlot, Mike, you go over there and, and uh, you know, you go over there and if a deer comes, if it's got bucks, shoot it, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a little different that way. So you're getting deeper into it too. Right. And I'm assuming you're doing that on your own. Yeah. Well, you should try to find somebody older. There might be someone around here that's older who knows a lot about it too. So. Yeah, right. I uh, I just learned of a gentleman, a deer biologist out of Munising, I think, John Ozaga. Ozaga. Mm -hmm. I need to look he's him up. He's been around a long, I don't know him, but he's been around a long time. You know the name? I've heard the name, yeah. Okay. I need to order some of his books because I think there are a lot about this Midwest whitetail habitat style stuff. So I need to. He's close enough. Why don't you call him and go talk to him? Yeah, I probably will. Or invite him to come here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you should do. Yeah. 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 He might have changed his mind from the first book he read to the second book he read or, the la or wrote the last book. Yeah. He might have a whole new world of thought on it. Yeah. Yeah. But on the book side of things, you said that original. Your original boss, the gentleman that took you out, what was his name? Can you say it? It's a unique name. Orville. Orville. Blanton. Blanton. Okay. Eustace. But, but you call him OB? He typically? went by OB. Yeah. Okay. So OB, he wrote a couple books on Woodcock? He didn't write any books on Woodcock. He would write books on observations of uh, observations of nature. Okay. Yeah. Notes from the North Country would be, there's the only one I can remember right now. Notes from the North Country, if you look that up. Google it, it'll come up with OB Eustace, so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but what about for you on the on the reading side of things? It's been a lifetime of reading, so I'm sure that's gone many different directions, but what type of Woodcock style books do you like to read? Very technical habitat stuff, or do you read like adventure stories, or what do you? I don't read that much, and I haven't, haven't read that much over the years, I don't say. I'm just, I'm reading some books now, people who 
Uh, there's several nice um, coffee table books out you can buy the last several years. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are um, about their hunts and about the stories of the birds and about camp. Uh, and, and there's some about the nature of the birds and and how to find them. It's, it's all kind of intertwined. So I like those stories of four guys go to camp and they shoot this, but some guy misses four of these over here and it's the whole thing it isn't it isn't about the adventure it's it's just about the story i guess hmm. it's it's your story it's your story and what you find interesting and if your story intrigues me we have to be somewhat to have the same nature right to be that way yeah i don't think it was a very good answer but no no I, yeah i can appreciate that i'm just curious too if some of the like if you got into like reading uh, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Alma, Almanac and stuff, right? The, how influential he was into some of that early habitat stuff. And then tying that into uh, what you said about the, how the hunters are engaged and they're the ones that invest into habitat and funds for these animals. Can you touch on that? I didn't realize that when I was younger that the hunters have a huge impact on habitat, science, improvement, whatever it might be on the for whatever they're into right um how many how many people do you know who don't hunt that you know your peers how many people do you know who don't hunt that have ever gone to a white tails limited banquet yeah nobody right well how many people do you know who hunt in your general age group who have gone to a white tails banquet quite a few and and what so so who's caring for who's caring for the critters Right, the hunters, the people who are passionate about them, yeah. Yeah, and they may, you know, the 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 non-hunters say, I even have people say it to me, well, you're having that banquet because you want to go kill more woodcock. Well, I hope by now I'm certainly beyond that point. I mean, I, a person who knows what they're doing with a dog who knows how to do it during the peak of the woodcock season can... can if you hit it right, you could shoot a lot of birds in two hours mm -hmm. if you hit it right. Um, we don't we do not do that. And, and part of it's because I'm older and part of it's because that's what I preach to guys. If you want if you want to get a limit of woodcock, that's fine. If you get a limit of three birds, that's fine. I don't think the birds are going to be gone. But, but the point is it's the hunters that do it. Mm -hmm. There's the odd person who's not a hunter who may even understand what woodcock habitat is. But generally speaking, the person who knows the best what woodcock habitat is, is who is the person who takes their dog, takes their friend, goes, walks through the habitat, finds some birds, shoots a couple birds, and goes back to the truck and has a nice conversation with their friend about it or talks to their dog about it. Mm -hmm. It's not the person who says, I'm a biologist and I don't think you ought to kill anything. Right. Right. A deer in Michigan, deer... I mean, deer in Michigan, uh, it's between, uh, are you aware of how many deer are killed in Michigan by vehicles that are reported? I know it's high for sure. How many? I don't I don't know the number. Yeah. How many per day? I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. How many do you think per day? Oh, it's got to be hundreds per day, thousand a day. I, I don't know. It's got to be a lot throughout the 60 whole state. 60 to 80,000 deer are killed in the state of Michigan every year by vehicles right reported well seventy thousand is 200 deer car accidents a day 
I mean, I mean, if if they're not, if pretty soon they ban deer hunting, then someone's going to have to be hired to shoot the deer, right? Because they're just going to run, and they're already overrunning everything. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean the deer should be decimated like they were around World War II, to where there were fifty-five thousand deer in the whole whole Upper Peninsula, right? I mean, that's all there were was 55,000 or maybe in the whole state. I can't remember the number for sure. But so it's the people who care. Now, if they care because they like to go shoot a woodcock and eat a woodcock, or if they care because they like to see their dog learn how to work birds for the owner, Mm -hmm. or or they just care because they want to take their children and show them, or they care just because the bird is there. If you care, but you don't do anything then then i don't i don't know if you, then you're no better than the person who just goes kills all the deer they can shoot because they just want to shoot deer and let them lie right you're no better than that so so it's the people who care who do something and if you care you have to give some of your time to do something for it right in your case you have to give some of your time to help people and to help help with habitat or or help people understand the deer hunting that you do mm-hmm. and what it's about. You have to not only learn where the deer go and why they go there, but then how can you perpetuate the deer? How can you keep in the in the Montana or wherever you go for mule deer, how can you make sure that those deer stay there? I mean, North Dakota is surprising to me. Do you know how many, do you know how many deer licenses can you buy in Michigan? How many deer can you legally shoot in Michigan? You can shoot per person two whitetail, right? Well, you tell me. You're yeah. the hunter. I'm not the no, deer no. hunter. That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah, I, but can't you get can't you get other permits for does in certain sure. areas? Yep, you can get doe permits for different areas. And downstate, I, I, so I'm I'm applying that to just right where I'm at is yeah. too. But yeah, downstate, there's areas where you can shoot. I don't know if the answer is unlimited, but many many deer. Right. Yeah. How many? How many? And if you want to buy a license, you you and anybody over 18 or 16 years of age can go buy a deer license at Walmart or wherever. Right. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah. So what do you think about North Dakota? Yeah, and super familiar with their system as well. It's, yeah. All... But do you know North Dakota? If I'm a if I'm a resident of North Dakota, I can't just just go buy a deer license. Yeah, not a deer rifle license, a deer bull license. You can, yeah. Yeah, but I can't buy it. But in North Dakota, they just dropped the deer licenses for this year by eight thousand. Hmm. I know people, families in North Dakota that shoot they shoot big bucks because they want to shoot big bucks, and I don't appreciate it. But but I know people in North Dakota who as a family come up with no licenses for the year because no antler licenses for the year because they're limited. Mm-hmm. So Michigan, we have this opportunity here for people who want a deer hunt right. to do a lot and it can help in reducing the herd so not so many starve and not so many get hit by cars. But in North Dakota, remote area, not anyone, not everyone can even get a license. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's only 350,000 people live in North Dakota. Right. It's... uh. Yeah, when I, I lived in North Dakota and hunted out there, you could get oh, a bow tag yeah. every year, uh, but you couldn't get a rifle tag. I applied five years straight and didn't get one. Uh, depending on the area and what species and all that stuff, there's yeah. different units you can get every single year. But right. yeah, it's yeah way different out there versus here for sure. So, so you have to care. I mean, I mean, people have to care, you know. And, and yeah, it's 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 the people who care tend to be the people who hunt or used to hunt. And they care mm-hmm. because they know they know more about how it works, and they know more what matters. You know what habitat matters better there and here right. than I do, and you care more. And I know what hab- habitat works for woodcock and grouse to some extent. Grouse are just miserable, mm-hmm. but um, 
it's the people who care that make a difference. It's not the people who say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. It's the people who do something. Right, right. But even uh, look at the success of the turkey, which uh, even talking about turkeys, are they detrimental to the woodcock population? That's just a little side I have side no question. idea. You're not sure? I just there. don't know how the turkeys live up here with all the snow. <laughs> Interesting yeah. thing, in 1959, maybe 60, must have been 1960, 61, uh, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was 11 or 12 years old. I was in the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. And we went on a weekend to Nuego, Michigan, if you know where Nuego is. Oh. It's central, a little bit north. Okay. Deer country, salmon fishing country uh, on the rivers. And we watched, we went in a blind that the DNR had set up, and we watched the first flock of turkeys reintroduced into the state of Michigan hmm. ever. And that was back in 1960, plus or minus. Right. Yeah. But nationwide, turkeys are maybe even in more places than they were originally. Yeah. But either way, they're, uh, I mean, going back 40 years to today, they're way more places, their population's significantly up, largely due to hunters' interests and hunters' dollars that have gone into that. That's right. Right. That's right. But and it's, but I was always told turkeys would never live in the in the western UP up here because the snow depth is too deep, and they can't claw to get grit. Mm-hmm. You know, but that obviously isn't true. No, <laughs> they're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, they're doing well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if every one of them's getting fed through the winter that I see, but they're all over. They're they're just amazing. Yeah, right. They're an interesting bird, but I, I've heard they're well. D- does a woodcock nest in the ground or are they up in the trees no they nest in the ground okay small nest in the ground yeah i i swear i've heard and again this is on a i don't know a ton about turkeys yet i've only been into it for a free for a few years but i swear that i've heard they're detrimental to ground nesting birds maybe I'm, i think i've heard the same thing too but i really don't not sure I, I just have in my memory bank that i did hear that at some point but uh i can't relate anything okay uh and but what about on the on the society side of things what are you guys working on is that or how long have you been in that, and what's been a large part of your focus? We started it three or four years ago. Um, we're raising money, um, and we're working on habitat. We're working on some of these gems area. The state has grouse-enhanced management system areas, mm-hmm. uh, and we're working with flagging the trails and doing some of that. Um, and we're still kind of in the getting-going stage here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some good fundraisers, and... Um, we're working to generate more funds so that we can help and and assist in planning different shrubs and this and that and all of that. Okay. So about largely around the habitat side of things is the, the primary focus. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the money that we're getting is spent for habitat and for, you know, trails and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, anything new on the horizon? I mean, you, you got introduced to the quail hunting in Arizona. Do you have any other things that you'd really like to try out new places for you know, quail i really like don't I, I i'd like to get a scale quail they're runners okay gambles are runners too but scalies run more i you you can't get them up hmm. <laughs> they they just say running safer than flying so right yeah but that's down there there's uh three type of quail mainly in arizona the gambles the merns quail the merns quail are down near the border the mexican border which is about an hour and a half south from where uh, we stay there in wintertime, mm-hmm. and uh, they've been very much up and down. The population's been up and down, and access access to the lands that they're on has been 
periodically uh, due to gates and that has been uh, uh, not as available. So I just don't have a tendency to drive an hour and a half to go find some birds like that. But we'll we'll probably go next year if they do a little better. Okay. Arizona's been in mostly in a drought for over 23, 24 years. Southern Arizona has been in a general drought. Right. Um, last year down there, there was no rain for a year. And all of a sudden in August, it rained 13 inches, which was an inch more than it's ever rained in the month of August in, its whole, in the whole record of keeping. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. it makes a big difference. So, right. um, and I can't remember, but one of the, one quail family, the Gamble's quail, uh, one of them likes the winter rains and that helps them in breeding. And the other one likes the summer rains that can tend to come in May and June when they get those rains. And I can't really remember for sure which bird likes which but they really just need a little bit of rain all year long and they haven't been getting that for 25 years hmm. okay uh but looking back when you first started of course how could you but did you realize you'd be this engaged for this amount of time no but awesome that you were i mean it's oh, been yeah. a fulfilling thing yeah yeah i mean i look forward to bird season all year yeah yeah the other crazy part adam was talking about you would take uh, now that i know it it I mean, it makes total sense, but you would take your dogs out in the off season through this specified time window and train them and, and let them do their thing. Or is that, is, do you do that as well? <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to say what I was going to say for Adam's benefit. So I won't okay. say that. <laughs> You're a friend, Adam. I won't say that. So right. anyway, yeah. Uh, from April 5th, I think it's April 15th until I believe July 15th, um, April, May, June, July for three months you're not able to um, take dogs into the hunting woods and hunt birds with them. Mm -hmm. And the reason is the birds are young and you don't want your dog disrupting the, the young birds that are growing, growing up and been born and all that and mm -hmm. screwing the nests up and that. That's why. But right. But once, uh, once that July 15th comes, we'll go out many times. Yeah, we'll go out and work the dogs and try to find birds. We'll go to new areas, go to old areas, see if we can get the birds up. Mm-hmm and just see what's going on and the dog gets experience i mean when i used to work and i would drive fifty thousand miles a year i would hunt about seven to ten days and that would be after work because i'd make my my hotel would be in that area where i knew there was some spots to hunt birds a little bit mm -hmm. but now we can hunt more than i can hunt more than that uh, because i'm retired so you, you a dog doesn't get a lot of experience seven to ten times hunting no you have to give it all the experience you can and the more the more you can get a dog into birds, the more times a dog bumps birds and finds birds and gets to learn to understand birds, the faster it'll learn. And in some good dogs, they have genetic memories that I mean, it's almost like you can see it happen. It's almost like wow, look what that dog did. And then the next time, it's like he must have just opened the next chapter and read the next chapter. Yeah. And they can learn so so much so quickly. Right. Okay. But on the uh society side of things you're looking for new members people to get involved and and i guess big picture stuff you'd be excited to, to increase the number of woodcock hunters right just because that increases the amount of people who are passionate about it or is that kind of the catch-22 how many more people do you want walking around the woods looking for your deer where you're <laughs> looking <know>. for <laughs> it's a catch-22 right it is a catch-22 yeah. it is a catch-22 yeah i you know i, I there are there are locations in the Upper Peninsula where people come from Missouri. Hmm. I've heard of people coming from Missouri and Tennessee and down that way, and they're coming to bird hunt. 
in bird hunting in Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, bird hunting isn't pheasants. Right. It's grouse and woodcock. And they're coming to hunt birds up here. Yeah. I don't know if that's because where they live down there, they may be in a populated area and they don't know of any rural areas that they can go. And But they come up they come up into the west, into the Upper Peninsula, yeah. Mm-hmm. No. And we live in a unique area. We live in a unique area. Uh, the western Upper Peninsula is. I've never hunted too much in the center part of the Upper Peninsula. Okay. And, and you can. There's hunting there. You just don't have to drive that far. But we tend to have smaller woodlots. Mm-hmm. The right kind of habitat growing up tend to have smaller woodcots, woodlots than larger woodlots. So uh, I think in, in seriously in in 25 years of being here, 20, 24 years of being here hunting, um, I think I've gone to hunt one place two times where there was another car there. Hmm. Only so, two times. Yeah. Did I have to change? So that's been nice. Right, right. It's a lot of a lot of opportunity, a lot of space to be on your own and get after yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah. we have a lot of big woods too, and the big woods don't hold the birds. Okay. So that's all I'll say. If you're gonna go hunt, go to the little woods. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could get, uh, yeah, we could get deep into tactics and tips and tricks, but part of it's just the journey of the hunter, right? They should learn and be engaged on their own and get after it. Hey, you, you, it's just like pheasant hunting in North Dakota. You just got to keep walking. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's fun to hear again. It's, uh, like you said, we can go ask a hundred people on the street right now. A lot of them wouldn't even have understood what this bird is right here so but just no. to hear that you've devoted uh at least a huge part of your life to them it's kind of cool yeah it's it's what it's been about for me yeah yeah it's been good yeah but mike i, I really did, again i enjoyed it i appreciate you hopping on thanks for doing this thank you very much yeah hey guys thank you for listening today i hope you enjoyed it if you have and you feel so inclined Share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.